We've taken kind of an extended break from Genesis, an unexpected one, uh, primarily due to the war in Israel, uh, between Israel and Gaza, that uh, did take us by surprise, and so we paused between parts three and four of our Genesis part two study uh, in order to deal with that biblically. And then, of course, our brief Christmas break looking at uh, the shepherds, the magi, and Mary and Joseph, and the significance of the virgin birth. And now we're back in Genesis. We are back to Abraham and his life now that Isaac has been born, as we see the beginning of the promises that God has given to him fulfilled. And here we see Abraham being proven. We finished with the provisions of God, which took us most of the summer, and now we move into Proving Abraham, which is going to take us uh, actually just about two months to get through all of these. Uh, we'll be finishing sometime in early March. But this morning, we are looking at an event once again with the king of Gaza uh, named Abimelech. And here it's a covenant that Abimelech will make with Abraham at Beersheba. The main point for this morning, so that it is on the back of your mind as we go through these verses, Abraham begins to take possession of the land, though he will continue to be a sojourner for the rest of his natural life, his tent stakes will become more rooted in the land. Abraham is recognized by neighboring rulers as having rights of settlement in the land, and they make covenants with him. Abraham is recognized as a blessing on account of God, but his human flaws are still visible. Now, since it's been quite a few months since we have looked at Genesis chapter 21 after the birth of Isaac, I'll remind you that the entire life of Isaac is set up in a chiastic structure. Chiastic comes from the Greek letter chi, which is a giant letter X because this is the shape that this outline takes, where the first and the last point will go together, the second and the second to last point go together. And this is actually how the Hebrews outlined their books, and this is how they would do their poetry as well. This was a literary means of pointing to the most significant point in a story. And so we have the outside edges of this chiasm, being God's choice of the younger son, Isaac. Remember, Isaac had an older brother, Ishmael, and God did not choose Ishmael, but he chose Isaac. Later, we'll see in Genesis 27, God's choice of the younger son, Jacob, instead of Esau. We also saw the marriage of the older brother, the non-chosen son, who was an archer, Ishmael, was married to a foreigner. In the same way, Esau, an archer, will be married to a foreigner in Genesis 26. Here today, we are looking at the conflict between Abimelech and Abraham over a well. And this will parallel with the conflict between Abimelech and Isaac over a well, over the same well, in fact, in Beersheba. After this week, we will begin to look at the life of Isaac in a little bit more focus. 
we will see Abraham risking it all for the covenant. In other words, throwing his entire hope on God's promise of the provision of a son. Uh, and we will see Esau scorning the covenant, selling his right for a cup of soup. Then we will see the genealogy of the arrogated line of Nahor and the genealogy of the arrogated line of Ishmael. In other words, we see two genealogies that close off the bloodline of a son that was not chosen. In other words, this is where we leave them. They will no longer be seen. Then we have the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, in chapter 23, uh, paralleled by the death of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah, in chapter 25, leaving us with the most important point in Isaac's life. Chapter 24, his marriage to Rebekah. This is also the longest chapter in almost all of Genesis, with 67 verses, and the story is repeated three times in the chapter because it is so significant. Because God is using this marriage between Rebekah and Isaac to continue the seed line. Just as it was not only Abraham, but Abraham and Sarah specifically, through whom God would bring the Savior. So it is not just Isaac, but through Isaac and Rebekah specifically, that God will eventually bring the Savior. Now concerning the episode this morning of the contract between Abimelech and Abraham over a well, we see in here the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. God's promises to Abraham are eternal and will take place over all of human history. In fact, they have not yet been fully realized. However, Abraham will see shadows of them in his natural life and the fulfillment of them in his eternal life. Concerning the seed promise that was given to him of an eternal descendant, God promised Abraham an eternal lineage through his own seed, not through an heir taken from another uh, family and adopted in, and not through a different wife other than Sarah, but specifically through him and Sarah. We also saw land promises that this eternal lineage of Abraham's would not just wander aimlessly in the entire world, but that God would root them and plant them in the land that he had chosen for them. God promised Abraham a specific plot of land for his descendants. In chapters 13 through 19, or 12 through 20, concerning the land promise, God prepares Abraham for the fulfillment of these promises. We see him fighting wars. We see him getting into a strange uh, marriage-like contract with Hagar. And for the land, we see him protecting his neighbors, and we see him cheating his neighbors. We see all the bumps and bruises of a man learning to trust God with God's new promises for him. And concerning this morning and the seed promise, we see that God protects the seed from internal and external threats. The internal threat of Ishmael is expelled in the last uh, section of 21. And in this section today, we see an external threat questioning the right um, of them to be in the land and to have sustenance in the land. And for the land promise, God provides and protects Abraham's possession in the land. Finally, next week, God will prove the seed promise with the provisions of life for Isaac. 
He places a substitute for Isaac and spares his life. But God proves the land promise also with provisions for the death of Sarah in her burial. And so we see how chapter 21 is intimately tied into the entire promise that has guided the course of Abraham's life. The promise of land, a specific plot of land, through which God is going to restore the entire creation. We have the promise of a seed, an eternal descendant, uh, who will correct the problem of death that has been introduced into humanity. This is not in an immediate descendant, but in a distant descendant. And then we have the promise of blessing. Both of these land and seed lead up together with blessing. And this is the restoration of broken fellowship with God. This is what God is doing throughout history to restore man to himself, to fellowship, to right fellowship with God. And since it's been so long since we've been in Genesis, and it was actually about this time last year, or March last year, that we started looking at the life of Abraham when we saw this chart last, uh, we remember that we are in a unique dispensation in the life of Abraham. This is now after the fall, after Eden, after the fall, after the uh, dispersion at Babel, and we're now in a dispensation of promise in which God has chosen Abraham to steward his promises. And he'll pass that down to Isaac, and he passes it down to Jacob as well. But he has also given them a responsibility. He has told them to separate themselves in action and in hope to God. And the test is that they would mediate blessing to their neighbors. They were placed in this land and told, go and be a blessing. And this is exactly where we see the human failure. Though we see Abraham at times, being a blessing, and as we will see this morning, Abimelech recognizes that God's blessings are mediated through Abraham. But never do we see Abimelech fully come to trust Abraham because Abraham shows himself to be personally untrustworthy. Ultimately, this will result in Israel's temporary expulsion from the land into Egypt after they massacre an entire tribe in Shechem. But that's enough background. We can jump into the text this morning with all of that in mind. We have now located ourselves in the text and we are prepared to understand it. And we start with a plea that the king Abimelech brings to Abraham. Genesis 21:22. we read, Now it came about at that time. What time are we talking about? Well, if we consider the context, this happened at the same time that Hagar and Ishmael were wandering in the wilderness when God was protecting and preserving them. He was working at the same time to protect and preserve Abraham in his sojournings. So at, the, at that time is right after the expulsion of Ishmael and Hagar. What happens? Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, come and speak to Abraham. Now Abimelech, we've met him before, and we are going to meet another man named Abimelech later, and then hundreds of years after that, we'll meet another man named Abimelech. And you start to get the sense that maybe the name Abimelech is like the name John, and just everybody names their kid Abimelech. But that's not the case. Abimelech is a title, not a name. Just as we saw with Melchizedek, it's not a proper name, it's a title. 
The etymology of this name means Abi, father, and Melech, king. This is the father king or the high king in that region. This is the title of a sovereign king, specifically the sovereign king in the region of Philistia. It was this same Abimelech who took Sarah into his harem in Gerar back in Genesis chapter 20, threatening the seed promise, threatening that the seed of Abraham would come through the woman Sarah and produce the seed promise son. Abimelech will show up again 90 years later in Genesis 26.1 after the death of Abraham, after the death of Sarah, and when Isaac is advanced in years. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. This is probably a different Abimelech, a different king. Abimelech did not come alone. He came with his commander or his general of the army. Phicol, the commander of his army, also came with him. Phicol is not a Hebrew name, and it's not a Philistian or Egyptian name. It's actually an Anatolian name, which means it comes from the region of Turkey. Uh, so this is a foreigner who is placed in the land of Gaza and uh, reaches high status there. And as we'll see, this probably is the early stages of another people group coming over and taking the land of the Avim and replacing it with the Cretans. Uh, that is the Philistians that the, uh, the Jews coming out of the Exodus encountered were not the same Philistians uh, that Abraham encountered in the land. They were wiped out, pushed out of their land early on uh, by another group. So there's a picture of Anatolia there. But what did these two come to say? First of all, recognize that Abimelech brings his commander, perhaps expecting some sort of a fight. Um, otherwise, just a demonstration of power and control in the region. But they both come to Abraham with a request, and a request based on reason and logic, from something that Abraham or Abimelech had noticed last time he encountered Abraham. And he prefaces his request with this, God is with you in all that you do. Abraham, or Abimelech recognized that despite Abraham's malfeasance in the land, God has chosen to bless him and chosen to mediate blessing through him. It's not about how good Abraham is, it's about how good Abraham's God is. Back in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, just one chapter earlier, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, God says to Abimelech in a dream, for he is a prophet, and he will pay, pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. In Genesis 26, 28 through 29, the next Abimelech, the next king in Philistia, will recognize the same thing about Isaac, after Isaac has tricked him in the same way, convincing the people of Gerar that his wife is actually his sister. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you 
that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have not or have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So you see for both of these, Abraham and for Isaac, there is an element of distrust in the person that they're dealing with, but a recognition of the God who stands behind them. The same is going to happen concerning Jacob when he goes to his mother's family, his mother's uh, uncle or brother, uncle, Laban. But Laban said to him, to Jacob, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Laban recognizes that God's blessings are mediated through this seed line, through Jacob. And in this case, Laban desires that Jacob would stay with him because of God's blessing. And now, concerning Abimelech, again, even though he distrusts him, even though Abraham has tricked him, he recognized that God stands with him and blesses through him, and so, despite Abraham's trickery, Abimelech asks him to stay in the land. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Remember, this didn't make much sense to us, but as we watch the, the progress of these two dealing with each other, we see that Abimelech is coming to recognize the God that Abraham worships. And of course, this all stems back to the same covenant, the same promise that God made to Abraham when Abraham entered the land. He promised Abraham unconditionally, I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now in the English, this is hard to make sense of because it looks like a simple future tense, but in the Hebrew, it is a command. It is not saying that this will naturally come about. He is commanding Abraham to do something. He is commanding Abraham to be a blessing in the land. And then God promises, I will bless those who bless you. Laban gave his daughter... To Jacob. This was a blessing to Jacob, and through that came the seed line, although Laban would then come to trick Jacob, and it would not go so well for Laban after that, because the one who curses you or the one who treats you lightly, I will curse or I will cut off. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the family through whom the earth is blessed, and the neighbors are starting to get the hint. Joseph, even, is recognized as mediating God's blessings in a foreign land in Egypt when they're brought down into Egypt. It came about that from the time he made him, Jake, or Joseph, overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. And so it makes sense that Moses begins the next statement with a now therefore, or on this basis, on the basis that Abraham recognizes that God is with Abraham. He makes a request of Abraham to swear to me here by God, to swear by this God who blesses and is powerful. The promise that he asks him to make is that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring, or with my posterity. 
Again, Abimelech does not trust Abraham, and he has no reason to trust Abraham because Abraham has been a bit of a shyster in this land. He has not been a mediator of blessing personally, but by God, mediating blessing despite Abraham. But notice as well that Abimelech does not ask him simply to uh, deal truly with him, but also with his offspring, his direct descendants, and with his posterity, his distant lineage. Abimelech expects Abraham to continue in the land. He expects him to be here for generation after generation and requests a peace treaty so that they would deal well with one another. Arno Fruchtenbaum, concerning this treaty, says that was the paradox Abimelech faced. God was with Abraham, but Abraham was deceptive. It was this contradictory element that called for a binding treaty, that Abimelech would call on Abraham to swear by the one good thing about Abraham, his God. We see that Abimelech trusts the power of God, but not the morals of Abraham. Abraham was learning to live in reality. Remember, one of the main problems about Abraham was that he's a bit of a liar. Uh, we'll see the same thing about some of his children as well, but Abraham just cannot bring himself to live in the same reality that God lives in. He cannot bring himself to be honest. Instead, he takes things into his own hands, becomes the God of his own world, divining a false reality in which he tries to operate. He claims that his sister is his, or his wife is his sister on two different occasions, not because this isn't partly true, but because it is partly deceptive. Because this would protect him by his own means, by his own hands, because he does not trust God to do it. And so he lies, because he trusts his own fake reality more than he trusts God. Lies are outside of reality, outside of the world that God lives in. Lies create a nasty world over which we are gods. Abraham is learning not to be a god of his own world. And this is a tough lesson to learn, and it takes him his entire life. And unfortunately, all the neighbors and his family have to put up with him while he learns this tough lesson. And so Abimelech goes on to say, not just swearing by God, but according to the kindness that I've shown you. In other words, at least show me the same kindness that I have shown to you. What was that kindness? Well, when Abimelech had discovered Abraham's lie to him, and when God had threatened Abimelech's life concerning Abraham, but then God told Abimelech that his only hope for rescue was through Abraham, instead of cursing Abraham, he blessed him. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. This was not a one-for-one -one transaction. Abraham had lied to, tricked, and threatened the life of Abimelech. And Abimelech blessed him in return because of Abraham's God. So Abimelech is asking that Abraham would deal with him the same way. 
He says, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Well, now we've got quite a few pictures here to show you the land in which they sojourned. First of all, a map here, and you can see just above that red uh, circle, the land of Gaza, and how close it is to Gerar. If you are standing at Gerar, you can see the city of Gaza, and you can make out individual buildings from it. It's that close. It's like looking down into the port of Tacoma from here. This is modern-day Gaza, and you see there Kibbutz Sufa and Ofakim. Uh, Gerar is just between those. Oh, you can't. That's too bad. Can you see this one? That's too bad. All right. Well, you can't see a modern map of Gaza then. You can see that one? Yes. Here, just south of Gerar, southeast, is Beersheba and the Negev Desert, the northern Negev. Oh no, this isn't going to be good. You can't see that one either. All the good pictures aren't showing up. There, you can see that one. So this is looking toward Gerar. This is from a, uh, a little tell called Gezer. And down there in the south, you can maybe make out some telephone poles uh, and some power poles. Uh, that is the area of Gerar. And you can see up here in the north, looking south, that it's kind of lush uh, ground. And then as you look off towards Gaza, it's a little less lush. It gets more shrubby. And then when you get into Beersheba, it's dry grass. There's not much green there. Well, this was the area that Abraham was living in. And this was the area that Phicol and Abimelech were living in. They came to a more arid location in order to uh, make a deal with Abraham, who was definitely not living in the best parts of the land. In fact, he lived pretty much between here and Hebron most of his life, and all of that is rocky and dry area. But the request to make a pledge is met by Abraham's response, I swear it. He promises. He promises by the God whom he serves, albeit poorly, and he promises based on the same uh, kindness that Abimelech has shown him. This is a peace covenant that they're making. He is promising peace between these two neighbors. However, Abraham had a complaint to bring up to Abimelech. Now, if you followed Abraham through this entire episode, you might wonder where does he get off complaining to Abimelech? But as we'll see, uh, even this land that he is living in is threatened by Abimelech's, uh, by some of Abimelech's kingdom, even though it's outside of the territory of Abimelech's kingdom. And it is an arid land that needs water, and what is threatened is specifically his source of water. Uh, so because of the well of water, which the servants of Abimelech had seized, can you see that one? Yes, good. All right. This is the region of Arad, just east of Hebron, from which Abraham came, and of course, Beersheba. This is the arid land in which he lived, in which he needed to find water, and water was not readily available. Um, here's Beersheba looking off toward Gerar, and you can see it almost immediately makes that change, right on the border of where the Philistines ruled. It turns to green, 
This is the main road there in Beersheba. Beersheba became a major settlement um, after the time of Abraham. And right through that gate, or right through that entrance there, is a well. And this well is believed to be the well that they had seized, that they fought over, the well that Abraham dug. And it goes down quite deep, but you don't really realize what this well is until you actually go into it yourself. Oh, no. Okay, well, here's one. This is walking down into the well because underneath this well is a cistern. It's not just a well that's got running or sitting water down there, but they uh, make great efforts to collect the water there because it doesn't just naturally appear in the ground the same way it does here. If we dig deep enough, we find a water table. That's not always the case in Israel. But if it rains once or twice a year and they're able to collect that water into the cistern, it can keep them going in their city uh, for quite some time. And here's a model of, um, of Beersheba. And you can see up there in the top left corner, uh, you can almost see right by the Blue River up there, that's the entrance where the well hole goes down, where they can collect water out of it. And you see the underground stream or cistern that is coming down through the south uh, or through the uh, bottom left corner there. That's the cistern that you can walk down into that collects water. So this was a big problem for Abraham when Abimelech's people came and seized this water. This was where he was living, and this was the only source of water that they had, and he needed it in order to live. We know that he had big flocks, big herds, and he needed to keep them fed as well as all the people with him. And so Abimelech said to him, I do not know who has done this thing. Notice the difference between Abimelech and Abraham. Abraham knew something was a lie, and he promoted it anyways. Abimelech's first consideration is, was he aware or not? He is exculpating himself by stating his ignorance towards this problem. Because he didn't know, he's not guilty of it. And he also tells Abraham, and you also didn't say anything to me, and I think this is a subtle jab here at Abraham, because Abraham probably could have said something earlier. Is he saving it in his back pocket for just the right moment to leverage the situation? Abimelech says he had not heard of it until today. We'll notice that Abimelech immediately makes amends, immediately takes it upon himself to fix the problem. And they begin a covenant ritual in order to secure peace and to restore this well to Abraham. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. This is the same kind of covenant that we saw taking place back in Genesis 20, verse 14, last time with them, a peace contract. Last time it had gone be uh, greater than just a simple peace contract where Abimelech had taken sheep and oxen and also male and female servants and given them to Abraham. Here, Abraham is giving Abimelech sheep and oxen. But with these sheep and oxen, the two of them made a covenant. This is a covenant that Abimelech is familiar with. They both understand this. It is cultural. Uh, they both know 
what it says, but there's something that Abraham does that Abimelech does not understand. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. This was not part of the custom that Abimelech was familiar with, and so he questions it, and Abraham gives him reasons for it. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. These seven are outside of the covenant of peace. They are not a clause of this covenant. That covenant is despite this well. But he is making a full and final payment for this well so that all who question Abraham's ownership of it would have as a witness Abimelech's accepting of this price. The same exact thing happened back in Genesis 20, verse 16 with Sarah. Abimelech did not owe this money to Abraham, but the transaction between the two was evidence that both of them accepted the truth behind it. Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Abraham accepted this money from Abimelech. Abimelech gave it to him on the basis of a statement of truth that he had made that Sarah had not been violated by Abimelech. Both of them agreed that this is true, and if anyone questioned it, they could look at the transaction. The same here. If anyone questioned who owned this land, they could look at the transaction between Abimelech and Abraham and see they both agreed that Abraham had dug this well. And therefore, he called that place Beersheba. Beer, meaning well, a well that you get water out of, and Sheba, meaning seven. The name of Beersheba means well of seven, and it's a play on words. Because there, were, uh, because there the two of them took an oath, a Shaba. This was apparently a very clever thing that Abraham did. He is now a father, not just to Ishmael, but to Isaac as well. And so he's making puns. He has become a master at dad jokes almost immediately. Just have to share these ones with you. My wife is going into labor. What should I do? Is this her first child? No, this is her husband. Have you met my daughter, Beth? And what's Beth short for? Because she's only three. This one doesn't have to do with being a dad, but cargo space? Car no do that. Cargo road. Sorry. Abraham was a good dad with some great dad jokes, and one of them was the Well of Seven. This sticks in your mind. Anytime anyone questions who owns this well of Beersheba, the very name of the place will remind them who owns it will remind them of the transaction that took place between Abraham and Abimelech. Puns are so great because you cannot get them out of your head. And now they're going to say farewell, now that they have this peace contract. And we see that Abimelech and Phicol 
they made a covenant at Beersheba, the well of seven, and they arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now they in their own right are not necessarily what we would think of as Philistines. In fact, this might bother some, but Philistine has absolutely nothing to do with racial lineage. Philistine or Philistia is simply the name of an area. In the same way that America has nothing to do with bloodline. It's a melting pot. You find all kinds of bloodlines here. You find Jewish, you find Irish, you find African, you find Asian. We're all here and we're all Americans. Not because of a bloodline, but because of the location in which we live. And this is what Philistia is. They go back to the land of Philistia. In Deuteronomy 2.23, when Israel is coming back into the land of Israel, they recall the Avim, a bloodline that used to be there, who lived in villages as far as Gaza. But the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and lived in their place. Back in Genesis 10, 13 through 14, we see in Moses' table of nations that he knew about this replacement, where we see that Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew name for Egypt, became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Initially, and if you remember back two years when we did Genesis chapter 10, these settled on the islands of Crete and in southern Turkey. In Joshua, when they begin to take the land, and there are places or bits of land that is left over that they had not uh, conquered, although had been given to them by God, it says this is the land that remains, uh, in the context meaning the land remaining to be taken that belongs to Israel, all the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron, to the north, it is counted as Canaanite, and then the five lords of the Philistines, the five kings living in the region of Philistia, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, and the Ekronite. Notice the footnote here, and the Avite to the south. These Avites had been pushed out of their land by the Kaphtarites and the Kathluhites, who had come in and taken over. They still existed, the bloodline was still there, but it had been removed from the region of Gerar and Gaza. We see then Abraham's response to this covenant. Abraham plants a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. This is what a tamarisk tree looks like. Good, you can see it. It is a sturdy tree, it's a strong tree with a very long life and very durable. And when it blooms, it's very beautiful as well. And this may indicate that Abraham expected to be there a long time. Rather than seeing him putting his tent stakes down, as has occurred in every other case where we get a concluding statement about Abraham, we see him doing something more permanent here. And we have good reason to believe that he remained in this area for nearly the rest of his life. 
Back in Genesis 13, 18, we saw Abraham move his tent, and he comes and he dwells in the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Something similar happens here, where he plants a tamarisk tree, and there he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, a God without end, a God who does not cease, and a God whose promises are just as everlasting. Back in Genesis 12:8, remember he proceeded from there, from Shechem, to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We see Abraham again recognizing the God who has placed him in the land and who is fulfilling promises to him. And as he sees these promises fulfilled, he does remember who it is who gave them to him. He did not get his son by his own means. In fact, contrary to all nature, this son was born. Sarah was not only barren from the beginning of her life, but she also had gone through menopause already before God gave them this son, so that there would be no question that it was God and God alone who provided that son. And then with all of these tumultuous episodes that we have with Abraham and his neighbors, we see that Abraham did not gain foothold in the land because he personally was desirable, but because of the God who stood behind him. Because of the God who stood behind him, he began to make contracts in the land. He began to have actual locations where he could plant his tent stakes and not pull them up to keep moving. Pretty soon, we're going to see Abraham actually purchase a plot of land, having a contract that identifies him as owning land in the region of Canaan. This is God fulfilling promises. This is not Abraham working hard to receive them. And so we have Abraham on his prolonged pilgrimage here. Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. It says sojourn because this is actually not where his settlement was. Remember when he moved from Hebron after the um, Ishmael incident, they settled down between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned up north near Gerar. And so his sojourning continues to be a more permanent sojourning, despite the fact that most of his servants, his cattle, his sheep, his settlements are down in Kadesh in the Negev desert. And so we see most of the Negev as the region which he travels back and forth between. And he's made a permanent place for himself up in Beersheba, the far southern point of uh, historical Egypt. And so in conclusion, Abraham begins to take possession of the land. Though he will continue to be a sojourner for the rest of his natural life, his tent stakes will become more rooted in the land. Abraham is recognized by neighboring rulers as having rights of settlement in the land, and they make covenants with him, securing peace. Abraham is recognized as a blessing on account of God, though his human flaws are still visible. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for this episode once again of your faithfulness. And we're reminded how it is not by any works of our own that we are saved, but entirely by your work, by your promises fulfilled in your Son. 
And we see that you are the everlasting God, the God who does not change his means or his ways. And we see that you had promised Abraham things that you supplied and you fulfilled. And in the same way, you have promised us eternal life, and we are certain that you will fulfill that. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.